So Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26, I say then, this is Paul speaking, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. How do you know if that tree in your yard is an apple tree? Mice? <laughs> that's, that's probably accurate. Not where we're going today. Apples. Apples. Now, somebody just said leaves. People who actually know can probably look at a tree by the bark, the leaves, the smell. They know that it's an apple tree. Or the guy, in my case, the guy at the nursery would have to tell me that this is an apple tree for me to know what's going on. But let's just say that you wanted to make an apple pie, and instead of buying ingredients, you just want to make it yourself from apples that you're going to grow. And uh, you then go and plant what you were told was an apple tree in your tiny little backyard. Okay, the bark is right, the leaves are right, it smells like apple pie, because that's how it works. But as it grows, there's no apples. Or one day... You're watching your apple tree grow and you notice a little green bulb forming. And as it grows larger and larger, you come to realize that it's not an apple, it's a pear. What would your conclusion be? It's a pear tree. It's not an apple tree. The guy at the nursery lied to me. Since your goal is apple pie, not pear pie, though if any of you are making pear and apple pie, I'm happy to help you with that. Uh, since your goal is apple pie, and for whatever reason you're stuck on the idea of growing your own apples, you have a decision to make. Firstly, if it is an apple tree, and it's not growing apples, it's going to need some attention. It's going to need to be pruned, to be fertilized, and lots of other things that I know nothing about. I might need an expert. But if it's a pear tree, and you want apples... You're going to need to make sure first that there are no partridges in this pear tree and then you're going to need to cut it down or dig it up because there's only room for one tree in your tiny yard. It's, I know this is an involved illustration, but there's only room enough for one tree. So, but if you get rid of the pear tree and you plant an actual verified tree that you prune and fertilize and sometime in the next couple of years, you will finally be able to make apple pie with the apples that you've grown. Because a healthy tree is going to bear fruit, the kind of fruit that it's supposed to bear. And in our passage today, Paul is telling us, and not in these exact words, but that we are fruit-bearing trees. And the kind of fruit that we bear reveals what kind of tree that we are. It reveals what's actually at the heart of who we are. Now, 
This is actually where this analogy kind of breaks down, as I'll do. But as a Christian, you're actually two trees in one. You have two sets of DNA in you that are capable of bearing two different kinds of fruit. Two hearts, two natures in one being. One of the natures is flesh or sin. This is what we were born with. It's a nature committed to the exaltation of self, right? Of of ourselves over everyone and everything else. The other nature is God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit that was placed there in our hearts when we came to faith in Jesus. And that Spirit is committed to loving and glorifying the Father. And because of that, these two natures are diametrically opposed. They are at war. If you're taking notes this morning, you can write down that we have two natures at odds with one another. Look again at verse 16. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you have two natures in you at odds all the time. You've got flesh or our sinful nature. That's our default. If we're switching from trees to cars, this is the OEM package, right? This is what we come with. This is is our original state. We come into the world with us and it's with us until we die. It's really cheery. The other is the spirit. This is what God gives us when we believe. The spirit moves in our hearts and comes in right alongside the flesh. And they are opposed to each other, and they struggle, and they fight. Our passage says the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh, so that you don't do what you want. If you're a Christian here, do you you ever wonder why you do the things that you don't want to do, or that you don't do the things that you do want to do? Well, this is it. I mean, you probably already knew this, but this is the deal. We have two natures in us at odds, at war with one another, fighting it out all the time. We have a problem at our root, at the heart of it all. Because our flesh says, I want this thing for me right now. But the Spirit says, hold on, that's not good for you. That's not good for others. The Spirit says, let's do things God's way because His way is right and it will actually give you true fulfillment. But the flesh says, God's way is too hard. God's way is too slow. We're going to do it our way. This is the everyday battle that the Christian faces. Every day for the rest of your life. Jesus said in Luke 9, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Two natures at war. So we're going to take a look at these natures, both of the flesh and the spirit. First, we're going to look at the works of of the flesh. Let's look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, 
idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's helpful for us to stick with this tree metaphor when reading this list because it's so important for us to remember that a list like this and the one that we'll be reading when we get to the fruits of the Spirit in verse 22, these are works or fruit that grow out of the tree. It's not the works or the fruit that make the tree the tree. It's the tree that makes the fruit. These are behaviors and attitudes that come from within. They come from the heart. The behaviors and attitudes may have a further negative or positive uh, effect on the life of the believer, but they are not externally motivated. They are outward symptoms of an internal reality. And Paul starts out with the works of the flesh, which are obvious, he says. They are clearly do not come from the Spirit. And he's warning the Galatians, he's warning us about these things that he defines as the works of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh include, but are not limited to, we'll get to that part soon, they include, starts out with sexual immorality, moral impurity, and promiscuity or, or sexual sin. Now this is an area of great interest to many, many people. An area that many Christians approach with a great deal of misunderstanding, with a great deal of baggage, and so often approached from the wrong vantage point. The question that is most often asked in a youth night when they're talking about this particular topic is something along the lines of, is this thing that I'm thinking about or wanting to do included in immorality? impurity, and promiscuity. And if that's the question that you're asking, I'm going to go ahead and say the answer is probably yes. Like This is one of God's greatest gifts to humans. But when He created this amazing thing, He intended it to be experienced in a very specific way. He intended it to be carried out in the context of a loving, respectful marriage between a man and a woman. And this is not because God is some kind of a killjoy who doesn't want us to have a good time. It's not because he wants to hold something back from you that is actually good. It's not because he wants something there to trip you up because he knows how hard it is to live this way. He's given us those boundaries because he designed it. It was his idea. And as the creator, he knows how it should be used and can set boundaries so that it will be used to bring fulfillment, joy, respect, intimacy, and oneness to the wife and the husband, and also, in the process, bringing glory to himself. Because God wants you to enjoy it. But, in the context of a loving, and I say this word again intentionally, respectful marriage between a wife and a husband. He set those boundaries. And anything outside of those boundaries 
are what gets described in these very general words in the three, first three works of this flesh. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, and promiscuity. Like I already said it, but if you're asking the question, does it include this? The answer is probably yes. But it's the wrong question. The question shouldn't be, can I do this? Or can I do this with this person? Or can I watch this? What about this thing? The question should be, as we discussed last week, how can I best serve others, my husband, my wife, my children, my coworkers? How can I serve others in love? Because most, if not all the other questions, are actually irrelevant. In love, putting the needs of others ahead of mine actually crowds out the works of the flesh. It doesn't give us space for them, right? If we're busy about the work of serving others in love, we will live out, pardon me, if we're we're busy about the work of serving others in love, we will not be able to live out the works of the flesh. We will bear the fruit of the flesh less and less and less because we just won't have time or space for it. We will still struggle with temptation. We will still lean toward, and if we're not careful, we will go back to the things on this list. For some of us, that thing that we're going to go back to is some sort of sexual immorality, some form of activity outside the context of a loving, respectful, committed marriage. Now, thankfully, well, thankfully for some, maybe for some it's not a a thankfully thing, but it's not the only things on the list. There's more to it than this. The list doesn't end there. The first three have to do with sexual sin. The next two we will call sacred or spiritual sin. Paul says idolatry and sorcery. So idolatry is worshiping someone or something other than God. Right? The Ten Commandments, the first one, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, I would imagine that there are very few of you in this room that actually have a statue or an idol at home that you bow down to and pray to and worship. But I do know that many of us have specific things that we give all of our time, energy, and resources to. When we look to how we can spend or when we look at how we spend our time, our energy, and our resources, who or what it is that we actually worship does come into focus. Now, Unless you are just not paying attention to the world at all, you will be aware of a literally earth-shaking cultural phenomenon known as the Eras Tour. Fans bouncing to the music at the Seattle stop on pop star Taylor Swift's current tour caused seismic activity in Seattle That was equivalent to a magnitude 2.3 earthquake. That's just a cool fact that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. But this tour is expected to bring in $4.6 billion. It's estimated that on average, Swifties are paying $1,300 to attend a show. That's the tickets, the merch, the food, the parking, all that business. Some tickets were going for as much as $20,000. And if you're like me and you have young women living in your house, you're getting Instagram reels of 
Girls at these concerts losing their minds. Now, I saw one that I went to myself. My kids did not send it to me, but I saw one where there were these girls and they were waiting to see what the surprise song was going to be. The song that they got to hear that the other tours didn't get to hear. And when it came on, I'm not joking you, they passed out, fell on the ground. They're convulsing. They're having some kind of a crazy religious worship experience. Now, I can't see in the heart of every Swifty to assess their motives. Like, I would probably like to go to the show, but that's another thing. What I can say is that that kind of behavior is worship. It is. Paying that kind of money says something about how much worth you place on Taylor or her fans or the experience or just your own FOMO. Look, assigning worth to something, that is what worship is. Assigning worth. The word used to be worthship. Placing worth on something or someone over the worth that you ascribe to God is idolatry. We have so many things. We have so many things that get in our way. Now this list, this works of the flesh list could probably stop right here with idolatry. Because pretty much all of sin is idolatry. We idolize our desire. And our desire when misplaced, when misaligned, when driven by the flesh, it exhibits itself in the works of the flesh that are listed here in this passage. It's idolatry. Paul also says sorcery. Some translations render this word witchcraft. Turning to the occult for answers or guidance. It also carries with it some other meaning in the fact that the Greek word that's translated here to sorcery or witchcraft is actually pharmakeia, which is the word that we get our English word pharmacy or pharmaceutical from. Theologians and historians have noted that some occult practices would use drugs and other things to enhance religious experiences. They would also use them to euthanize the elderly. They would also use them to abort pregnancies. So idolatry, we have worshiping someone or something other than God. We have sorcery. We have circumventing God's plan through natural or supernatural means. These are works of the flesh. It's spiritual sin. There's sexual sin, and we can put the rest of the list under the heading of social sin. Hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, faction, envy, relational sin. It's sin that affects your relationship with others. Things that certainly get in the way of serving one another in love. Because who wants to be around someone who hates you? Someone who causes strife. Someone who's jealous. Someone who lashes out at you. Someone who uses you to achieve their own desires. Someone who sows discord. Someone who treats you differently because of your possessions or status or power. No one wants this. These things are not conducive to loving community. They're not. He adds to the list drunkenness and carousing. Look, alcohol abuse, substance abuse, taking part in unruly revelry or celebrating immorality. These things are not good for you. And not only are they not good for you physically and mentally, they also lead to all kinds of relational issues, right? Bad choices. And sometimes those bad choices result in long-lasting bad consequences. And then Paul ends that list with my absolute favorite item that does nothing for the clarity. And he says, all of those things and anything similar. 
That's the worst thing on the list, right? And if we're honest, we know what all those other things are. We might sit there and go, but Paul didn't say I wasn't allowed to do this. Yeah, he did. Because you should be able to use your brain and know that this is not good. Does it include this? Probably. What about this? Yeah. Or this? The works of the flesh, all of them, they're all sin. Some of them have more severe consequences, more earthly severe consequences than others, but they're all works of the flesh. And we're told that the works of the flesh have more than just potential earthly consequences. Paul says at the end of verse 21, those who practice such things, stuff in our list, and anything similar, will not inherit the kingdom of God. We have spent this entire series saying, you don't have to live the law perfectly in order to be saved, in order to obtain the kingdom of God. What is this? What is this saying? This does not sound like freedom. This sounds like legalism. If you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, is what Paul says. Now, the good news is, and you probably already know this, Paul's theology hasn't changed. We know that we don't have to keep the law perfectly in order to be saved. So it's not about works. So he cannot mean that if we give in to the temptation to satisfy the desire of our flesh, that we're out. That that's it, that we're done. When Paul says those who practice such things, he is referring to those who are living in habitual or deliberate, unrepentant sin. Those who have not put their faith in Jesus, who have not been given the Holy Spirit, who comes in, lives inside of us, and begins the work of crowding out the flesh. That's who he's talking about. Look, if you consider yourself a Christian and you are regularly practicing the works of the flesh, and you have no problem with that, that you maybe even take joy in it, or maybe even are trying to bring others along with you to do the same things, this is a moment for a heart check. And I'm not pointing fingers. This is for all of us, myself included. When we struggle with sin, and we all are going to struggle with sin, when we struggle with sin, is it actually a struggle Or is it just a way of life? Because the works, the fruit of the the flesh come from the nature, right? They come from who we are. Look at your life. Look at the fruit growing on your tree. Is it coming from the flesh? Or is it coming from the Spirit? Let's counter those two now. Let's take a look at the works of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. So we have two natures. We have the flesh and we have the spirit. The works of the flesh create disunity and do not lead to life, but the fruit of the spirit is the opposite of that. And before we get too far down this road, again, it's important to remember that just like the works or the fruit of the flesh, it's coming from within, right? The fruit of the Spirit grows because the Spirit has been planted in us and not because we've just added acts or works of love, joy, peace, patience, kind of all those things. Look, in the same way that tying apples to the branches of a pear tree 
doesn't supernaturally make it an apple tree. Works, the things from the outside, cannot change our nature. Only God can do that. Only God's Spirit working in you can bear this kind of fruit and crowd out the works of the flesh. Because if we could just try harder and be a little more loving, a little more joyful or peaceful or kind or good or faithful or gentle or self-controlled, if we could just do a little more, it would just be another way we'd be trying to earn God's favor. Another way of fulfilling the law through works, which we know is not possible. And we also don't have to do it. We're free from the law. We are free from trying to be good enough for God. And in that freedom, through the presence of God's Spirit in us, we bear fruit. And that fruit looks like the stuff on this list. Love, the first thing, agape, the Greek word, right? Many of you know there are several Greek words translated love, each describing a different kind of love. We've got eros, which is is romantic love. There's phileo, which is brotherly love. And agape is that intentional committed, faithful, unconditional love. It's the love that doesn't require reciprocity, right? It doesn't need something from someone else. It's a gift. It's the kind of love that God has for us. And we are instructed to, and the Spirit enables us to love one another because of and with the kind of love that God has given us. Read this in 1 John. Beloved, let us love agape. All the love in this passage is agape. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And down at verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Just like we could probably have stopped the works of the flesh list at idolatry, we could probably stop the fruit of the Spirit on the first one, love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And love is actually part of all the other things in this list. It's kind of like the root of them. Almost like the Spirit of the fruit of the Spirit is love. (laughs) Last week, we read that the whole law of God is fulfilled in one word, and that word is you should love your neighbor as yourself. And when you think about it, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, if you don't have love for others, you will never display any of these things. Conversely, if you really do love others, so many of those things will just happen naturally. Last week, we took a quick look at 1 Corinthians 13, where we read, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. It all stems from the same place. In addition to it being the root of all these other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, love is also, as we looked at last week, it's a countermeasure to the works of the flesh. Serve one another in love. 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love does what? It covers a multitude of sins. Love. 
Or we could say the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit covers a multitude of sins. The presence of the Spirit's fruit crowds out, does not make room for, does not give opportunity to the works of the flesh. Another thing that I like about the way that this is written is we're not told that these nine things are the fruits of the Spirit, plural. This is a singular word, fruit. When examining our lives to see if we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, which is something we should be doing, we should be examining, we need to remember that the fruit of the Spirit is all of these things. It's not just a couple. These are not some individual fruits that grow on a tree, like a tree with some cherries and some apples and some peaches, some apricots, you know, like a wonderful, magical tree, right? No, the fruit, the fruit... Singular, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's all of them. If we have the Spirit in us, we will exhibit all of these behaviors and attitudes. It's not like, hey, I'm pretty happy and joyful, but you know what? I have zero self-control, but I'm displaying the fruit of the Spirit. No, you're not. You're displaying an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. We're all at varying points in our journey with Jesus. He's working on all of us individually to mold us into the people that he wants us to be. Like I've already said a few times, this is a lifelong process. But if you are a believer, regardless of where you are at, this fruit should be, and actually I will say is, growing. Tim Keller said it this way, if someone has a spirit in them, if they are a Christian, the fruit will grow. Whatever a Christian's life is like, the fruit of the Spirit will burst through. It's inevitable. And it forces us to ask, if we've been a Christian, or if we've been Christians for a few years or more, is there fruit growing in my life? We are saved by faith, not by growing fruit, but we are not saved by fruitless faith. A person saved by faith will be a person in whom the fruit of the Spirit grows. That's great. Saved by faith, not growing fruit, right? It's not works. But we are not saved by fruitless faith. It's a question we've got to ask ourselves. If we are not producing fruit, why not? Like if the works of the flesh are more evident in our lives as Christians than the fruit of the Spirit, why? I will give you one, I'll give you two reasons, I think. I think it's two reasons I've got. One of the reasons, and this is a super downer, one of the reasons you might not actually know Jesus. You know about him, You've got some church-going habits. Maybe you avoid sin for the most part, but you've not really put your faith in Him. You haven't given Him control of your life. There are people in church who don't know Jesus. It shouldn't shock us. But let's deal with that today. If that's you, come talk to me afterwards. Talk to one of our elders, our prayer team, somebody from the band. Look, here's the deal. No one is going to judge you. There is nothing to be ashamed of. There will be joy in the fact that you have come to know Jesus. We're not better than each other because we've been in church longer and we know that's not the way that this works. Don't leave here without talking to somebody. That's my my, my plea to you. That's one of the reasons. You might not actually know Jesus. Another reason that the fruit might not be as evident in your life as it should be or as much as you would like it to be, is that keeping in step with the Spirit is a proactive and lifelong process. Verse 24, 
Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Look, the work, the work is hard. It is. And not because we have to try to live up to an, obta- an unobtainable standard of the law, but because we have two natures in us at war with one another, both vying for control of our lives for the rest of our lives. Like, sign me up. I want, <laughs> I want to struggle until I'm 95. So are we stuck? having to continue sinning and giving opportunity for the flesh? Well, if we ask Paul in this book of Galatians, the answer is no. And the reason is because according to this letter, according to Paul's other writings and writings of other guys in the New Testament as well, we are no longer slaves to sin. We died to ourselves, our old selves, our sinful nature, even in our passage here says it's been crucified. But here's the rub. We need to leave the flesh that we have crucified on the cross. Verse 24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Look, those who belong to Jesus have crucified their sinful nature. This is, this, we're told this is something that we do. We crucify this. We put it to death. And while it's the Spirit's job to enable us to do that, the act of dying to ourselves, giving up the old ways, it's something we have to choose to do, and we have to choose to not go back there. John Stott said it this way, and it's, it's beautiful and unsettling. If besetting sins persistently plague us, it is either because we have never truly repented, we talked about that, or because having repented, we have not maintained our repentance. It is as if Having nailed our old nature to the cross, we keep wistfully returning to the scene of its execution. We begin to fondle it, to caress it, to long for its release, even to try to take it down again from the cross. We need to learn to leave it there. When some jealous or proud or malicious or impure thought invades our mind, we must kick it out at once. It is fatal to begin to examine it and consider whether we are going to give into it or not. We have declared war on it. We are not going to resume negotiations. We have settled the matter for good. We are not going to reopen it. We have crucified the flesh and we are never going to draw the nails. One of the reasons crucifixion was such an awful means of execution is that it was not quick. It wasn't a beheading or a hanging. Crucifixion could take days. And for the Christian, crucifying the flesh takes more than just days, months, years. It's the whole life. This side of heaven, not a day will go by that we won't be tempted to go back to the cross, to look at what we put there, to wonder what it might be like to bring it down from up there again. But we can't. We have to leave it there. And that might mean a change to habits. It might mean bringing somebody in to keep you accountable. It might mean changing jobs. It might mean cutting off a relationship. Whatever it is that keeps you coming back to the scene of the execution, shut it down. We've got to leave our flesh on the cross. Secondly, we need to practice discipline. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, I'm not sure if this is actually what happens on a military base, but if I've learned anything from TV and movies, 
when you're on a military base, you will be passed by a group of soldiers, either two by two or three by three, all running in step together, right? You, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, we know that that's the way that it works. They're in step with one another, feet hitting the ground at the same time. It's the same stride. That's what's being described here. And that kind of running, it's not something that happens passively, right? You have to keep up. You have to keep your eyes on the person in front of you. You have to fall into rhythm with the one setting the pace and you have to stay at it no matter what. If you've watched cycling, and let's be honest, no one in here watches cycling outside of highlights on Sports Center. But one place I do actually like to watch cycling is on the fail videos. Cyclists and runners, right? It's, it's crazier with cycling than it is with runners, but a bunch of cyclists are bunched up together in a group. They're riding together precariously close to one another, right? It's called Peloton. It's intentional. And when doing this, they're able to catch a draft off the lead rider, and it, it makes it easier to pedal. It conserves energy. It looks really cool, but when one of those riders falls out of step especially when they're in a narrow passageway of some kind, when one person bails. Oh, man. You've seen the crashes. Look, this activity, it's not passive. We can't just live our lives and hope for the best. Because when the time comes, when temptation strikes, when the storm hits, we will find ourselves out of step with the Spirit and we will run straight back to our crucified nature. Bible study, prayer, meditation, fasting, service, solitude, church involvement, not just church attendance, church involvement. These are things that help us keep in step. We get rid of the things that are holding us back and we leave them up there on the cross and we keep going. Look, when we are actively pursuing Jesus, when we're disciplined, when we are in step, we're not perfect, we're not impervious to temptation, but when we were actively in step running with the Spirit, we are running away from our sin nature. But we have to stay at it. So we leave the flesh on the cross. We practice discipline. And lastly, we'll close with this. We serve one another in love. Verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. I stole that point from my sermon last week, but that's what we're seeing here too. Paul winds up this part of the letter pointing back to what happens when we don't keep in step with the Spirit. When we give opportunity for the flesh, we head back to our crucified nature. And the works of the flesh come out, right? Conceit. Don't let us become conceited. Selfish ambition, Paul said earlier. Provoking one another. Don't provoke each other. Paul said hatred, strife, outbursts, anger, dissensions, factions. Don't be envious of others. Earlier we read in the works of the flesh, jealousy. Let's not go back down that road. Because when we do, it's not only us as individuals that suffer, right? It's the wider community that church, or the, the wider church community that suffers as well. Don't provoke each other. Don't envy. It's, it's like the cyclists, right? When they're bunched up like that. Guys, I tell you, go home. Just type in cycling peloton fail. And I'll probably give you a stationary bike one, actually. Don't just cycling fail. But when they're all bunched up like that and one person bails, it can take out every rider in the race. Don't go back to your flesh. Instead, keep in step with the Spirit and watch its fruit grow in your life, both for your benefit and the benefit, I'll say it right, for Crossridge. You will benefit us as the fruit of the Spirit grows in you.
Your family will benefit. Your friends, your coworkers, your schoolmates. No one hates somebody who is loving and patient and peaceful and kind, faithful, gentle, self-controlled. Like, can you imagine a person who does that perfectly? Maybe you have somebody like that in your life. You're so fortunate. Can you imagine a church that's characterized by those things? I mean, that's what we're supposed to be known for. That's how we're supposed to live with one another. I can imagine that. I've seen it lived out here in places, and I know that it's God's plan for that to be the case because, remember, the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus wants his bride to be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what he wants. And if he wants it, if it's his will, it's possible for it to take place. And when we do that, when we bear the fruit that we're supposed to, we know him more, and this is the mission, guys. We become more like him, and as a result, we make him known to the world around us. So let's pray. God, I don't, I don't know what it is in the hearts of everyone in this room. There's too many things, but you know. The things that are calling to us, the, the works of the flesh that we so desperately want to hold on to. I, I pray this morning that your Spirit would enable us to see these areas that we are giving opportunity to the flesh God, we thank you that your spirit is in us and we pray that we would see that fruit grow and, and God, you know, call us on it. Bring people into our lives. Do what you need to do to make your church the way that you want it to be. We just want to pray that in your name. Amen.